Welcome to another edition of the Arena Craft podcast dedicated exclusively to Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna. I am your host. There is lots of magic content to take in at this interesting time in human history, and so I appreciate you giving me a little bit of your time. Today's guest is somewhat of a dream guest for me and someone who I've been following for at least a year now. And uh, listening to his podcast every week it comes out, so an exciting moment for me. But first, I just wanted to say that we have our first winner for this contest drawing we've had for the last month. And so in order for people to get into this drawing, they have had to like our Facebook page, join the Discord, leave a review in iTunes, follow on Twitter, and or subscribe on YouTube. And so I'm very excited to announce that the first winner of this monthly recurring contest is Discord user Brinks. So that's awesome. And basically what I did was I just tallied up the total number of people who had followed on any of the platforms, gave a little extra weight to the iTunes reviews, and then used a random number generator to choose the winner. And so this month's winner is Brinks. So reach out to me on Discord and let me know in what form you would like to take your $20 reward and I will make it so. So thank you and thus begins the next drawing for this coming month of April. So again, follow or join on any of those platforms that I listed before and you will get a chance to win the $20 drawing for the next month. And with that out of the way, let us begin the interview. So today's guest is someone who doesn't really need an introduction, but I'm going to attempt to anyway because everyone deserves that. This guy especially deserves it. He's a a beloved figure in the magic community, fearsome competitor, huge contributor through content. He co-hosts the Arena Decklist podcast. He's very deeply involved in Star City Games. He's a writer and a commentator. You see him a lot on the SCG tour. So anyway, without further ado, today I'm speaking with Brian Gottlieb. How are you today, my friend? I am doing fantastic. Thank you for inviting me on. And I'm trying to figure out how many of those characterizations I want to contest right now. There's definitely some of them (laughs) that are false. Like the beloved part doesn't ring particularly true to me. Uh, Fierce competitor, maybe one at one point in my past, fierce competitor applied. It doesn't feel like it these days, but uh, I still appreciate the kind words. Anyone who's been listening to my show for a long time will know that I like to give like a good WWF intro, you know, to everyone who comes on the show, really. Yeah, get me hyped up. I like it. Yeah, yeah, right on. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today, especially in light of weird things that are happening in the world. And i um, not going to go too much into that this episode because just really trying to give people something good to listen to and think about. So... What I was really excited to talk about when I was thinking about my conversation with you, Brian, was that if there's one word that comes to my mind when I think about you and your contribution to the magic community, it would be the word improvement. I think that like a lot of magic content creators focus on that and focus on helping people improve their game. But I've noticed that you take a more holistic view of improvement. Like, for example, you were running your Head Games podcast for a while, which was actually not even fully focused on magic. I I wanted to ask you, by the way, what happened with Head Games? Is that no more? Oh, I get asked this question so, so often. (laughs) Uh, So, and I don't even honestly know how to answer it. I, I guess it's safe to say it is no more at this point, but it's not like a conscious we don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Just Jonathan and I felt like we had explored a lot of the material we really wanted to explore. As we would get together on a week-to-week basis, it was harder and harder for us to have a topic that we were really excited to talk about. And both of us are the type of people who never want to put something out that is like below our personal standards. It was very important to us that the podcast always be genuine and always 
be focused on the improvement of others. And we got to the point where it felt like we were treading water a little bit. And ultimately, rather than be like, okay, we have to record another episode, let's just mine for this topic that we're not really into, we just kind of let it fade away. And I know there are a lot of people who are disappointed about that. I, I get just as many questions about head games still to this day as I do about the Arena Deckless podcast, which if you think about how widespread the Arena Deckless podcast is, like I, I think that's really impressive. It shows that we really hit on something that a lot of people wanted. But at the same time, my personal standards for quality wouldn't let me just keep putting something out there. So I, I guess it is dead. We're, we're not ruling out ever doing it again. Like I could certainly see circumstances where Jonathan and I come back together for a one-off episode. And I can certainly see circumstances where Jonathan and I find another format that we want to work together on. Cause I have the highest regard for his talents and you know, what he accomplished on our show, I think was really impressive. Uh, and I just like him as a person. I love talking to Jonathan. So I, I hope we can find something to do together one day in the future. Yeah, you guys just had a great chemistry and it was cool to hear you exploring your dynamic range as well because th this happens to me so much in Magic where I'll see a content creator and of course they're focusing on Magic because that's what they showed up to do, right? But you just, you get these glimpses into people's lives and Magic players are such interesting people. And so I just always love when I get that kind of glimpse behind the curtain and see what else is this person into, right? What else does this person do? I was also interested to hear on your last podcast, last Arena Deckless podcast, you were talking about a previous Magic podcast that you had been a part of, which I hadn't been aware of. Tell me a little bit about that. I think most people are not aware of it, and it may not even exist on the internet anymore. Like it was, It's such a small deal that it almost is not worth mentioning, but it's also where my skills formed. It was just a podcast I did with a friend of mine, a local friend. Um, and basically we set up a pardon the interruption type show, stole their format, basically step for step, like just doing exactly what they do. If you're familiar with the ESPN show, um, and talked about magic and it was bad and all of my opinions <laughs> were bad. And I am, I always say like, if you look back at the person you were, five to 10 years ago, and you're not embarrassed, you should probably be doing something totally different with your life. Mm, so mm. I'm fine with the fact that doing that podcast back then now kind of embarrasses me. Um, but it was a good place to just kind of get my feet wet and understand the format and get some technology under my belt and just see what I was capable of doing there. And the positive response I got from a very small segment of the community because we just didn't have a lot of listeners but the people who were enthusiastic about it were really enthusiastic about it and that made me feel like okay maybe i can do something in this space that's awesome i i love hearing about that and it it's so cool to just see where you've come in your time with magic and i i love that quote as well you know i used to hang on to my old journals and periodically reread them and at some point i was like i just I can't do this anymore. This it's is painful, painful, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it just hurts. And I, I still feel that way. Like when I go and read old magic articles I wrote, I'm just like, what am I doing here? What is this? And I know I'm going to feel like that about what I'm doing right now, five years ago, five years from now, but I am completely cool with that. And I think it just shows like a focus on continuing to improve as both a magic player and a person. I love it. So bringing us back to this theme of improvement, there's a number of things that I wanted to ask you about today, but the broad strokes of what I'm thinking about is that when I look at the content you make, I think a lot of where you are most helpful, and you do so much, so I think this is a bold statement I'm making, but I, I think that's one of the things that you really help people with is from going from that, like, maybe I'm one of the better players in my local scene, or maybe I win a lot of FNMs, and helping people go from that level to being a person who is maybe taking down a PTQ or someone who's trying to take down a GP and, and stuff like that. And so that was what I wanted to talk with you about today was what goes into going from being like a good player or maybe being one of the better players that you know in your circle to being a player who's actually posting results and actually having consistent finishes. I thought that I would start out by asking you, what happened for you that took you from being just someone who was enjoying magic, playing it regularly, 
realizing you were pretty good at it. And then how did you start to approach that point where you started thinking, hmm, maybe I could actually be competitive with this? Like, what was happening there for you? So I think my situation is so weird. And I think the weirdness of it has shaped my engagement with magic throughout. It has both helped and hindered my progression as a player, but I'll relay the story and then I can extrapolate some of what it has done for my growth process. Essentially, I I was around magic from the beginning, like 1994 was when I was first playing and no real competitive endeavors. Like I wasn't going to tournaments, but I followed tournaments. I knew about tournaments. I played on... Uh, apprentice via IRC back in like 1997, 98. So actually, without being known to it, I was being exposed to a bunch of really good tournament players because there was a solid tournament scene at that time. But that wasn't my goal. I wasn't trying to make the Pro Tour at that point. And I kind of went off to college and drifted away from Magic and went to poker for a while, but ultimately came back to Magic as just something I really loved. Like I appreciated the game and still not really thinking, oh, I'm going to compete at this or go to the pro tour. Uh, just playing magic online and doing well. Uh, pay, it was paying for itself. I wasn't putting any money into magic online for a very long period of time, but still not thinking like, okay, this is when I make the next step and when I push for this thing. Uh, but finally I started, you know, just attending some events locally and getting to know some of the people around and meeting some people who are going to go to GP Washington, DC, and I think 2010. And just kind of on a whim, I took off work and wanted to go and experience this thing for the weekend. And I remember walking in and being kind of awestruck with the people I saw because I followed content very closely. So I knew the faces of the pro magic scene and I was really in awe the first time I ever entered GP to see all these people who I had read for so long and took their opinions for so long, all just right in front of me and then getting to play them throughout the GP. Like I beat LSV on day one of the GP and then some other well-known pros on day two. But long story short, I play this GP and I qualify for the Pro Tour at my first ever GP. Wow. Without any real like, okay, this is what I plan to do. This is what I want to do. Uh, and just found myself in a position where it's like, okay, well, now it's time to get ready for a pro tour. And the first thing I did was reach out to who I knew to be the best player in my local area, Ben Lundquist, and connected with him. And he put me in touch with his friends who were like Cedric Phillips and just just people you know throughout the Magic community. And so immediately my first exposure to competitive Magic was with really good players at really high level. So I kind of shortcutted all that stuff and just went full speed in without really probably deserving to be there, honestly. Like, I'm sure my GP performance had a lot of luck baked baked into it. And like, certainly when I think about how good of a player I was back then, I didn't really know what I was doing. But still, I was in a position where like I had to sink or swim and I swam. And then I went to the PT and things started very well. I was 4-1 and constructed. And then I didn't know the draft format particularly well and floundered and missed day two. But still, I, again, beat like very good players, felt very comfortable. And my initial impression was just like, I can hang with these people. There's nothing actually all that different between us. Like, sure, they may be better than me, but like, the gap isn't as large as you imagine it to be. And that is really the key takeaway. And it kind of dispels some of this myth a little bit about leveling up. But the fact of the matter is, if you are in your local area and you win a bunch of tournaments and you do really well and you're the end boss of your local scene, you're probably good enough to go play on the Pro Tour and maybe string some really good finishes together. And maybe that rolls into, you know, now all these players' clubs are gone. So it's it's hard to make the same analogies, but it rolls to like platinum and then you're doing this and you're doing that. And it all just kind of snowballs from there. And there's so many great players who never got that snowball started. And so you don't know that they're great players, but they are out there and they're every bit as good as people who you see on a daily basis. And I always go back to Mike Sigrist. Mike Sigrist was just someone I knew in the local area for years and years and years. And it wasn't like we didn't know he was freaking awesome at magic. Like everybody knew that, but he was just kind of like around the scene and occasionally doing good. And now he's an absolute fixture of the pro scene. And I don't think anything has really changed. He's always been that good. He just finally got his break. 
And I've long suspected this for a while. And it's funny because you even hear, you know, you hear people like LSV saying, oh, if I hadn't won so-and-so tournament, I probably would have quit. It's true. You know, you just, you hear that for so many established Magic players will say things like that. And so I think it does just underscore the fact that there is a certain amount of luck, which helps people get to where they are. But I'm trying to remember how the saying goes, but it's basically something like you work hard so that when you get lucky, you're ready. I wish I could remember like the original saying where that comes from, but I really like that concept because if you look at people, whether they join the NBA or whether they're in a band that gets signed or or a published author or whatever, yes, there is a decent amount of luck involved in that. But the fact of the matter is if you're not ready to get on that train when it rolls into the station, then you're just not going to go anywhere. So I feel like a lot of people out there will look at a player like you or like Mike Sigrist or any number of other kind of well-known players that I could list off here and think, what does that person have access to that I don't? It's almost like it's easy to imagine a club of people in some elite discord having a chat or, or reading some magical archive of here's what's actually good in the matter that no one else has access to, right? And that's kind of like a ridiculous little imagining. But I think that a lot of people unconsciously think that that's happening somewhere. Can you peel back the curtain a little bit on that? Like, where do you go for your information? So to some extent, that used to be true. There was a lot more like hidden information and, you know, Facebook groups of the top players sharing information and a lot of like, did you have the breakout deck for this weekend was about who you knew and were you in on the secret, but that's gone now. Like that just doesn't exist anymore. And there's so many good resources to get information with the rise of streaming. Like the best players are just constantly streaming at this point. There's also all these communities not the least of which being our community, the Arena Decklist Discord, where there's just some of the greatest players in Magic hanging out, talking about ideas. I've seen so many decks born of just casual discussions in our Discord. And I I think the time of information gating has passed. It also helps, too, that my co-host, Jerry Thompson, was one of the first people popularizing the idea of just prepare publicly, share your information with people. You know, he was one of the first people to share deck lists where everyone else kept them secret. He was upfront with what he was doing and he proved that as a viable method of content creation and showed that it didn't really impact his results. Now it may have had a small impact. Certainly he relayed to me the PT he finished second at where he was playing Mardu Pyromancer. He said everybody knew his deck list top to bottom where he didn't have that advantage in every single round. And that matters for sure. But he still finished second. So you overcome those deficits and you uh, you gain a lot of credibility. And there's other benefits to just being open with your information. And I think the Magic community at large has seized on those benefits at this point. Well, first of all, just another thing that makes Jerry Thompson an outstanding human being. I think that he is just a great example of how you can do things differently and and follow your own integrity and post results and be a successful magic player and not have to have this kind of scarcity mindset that so many people have around doing well. So mad props to Jerry in general, and also mad props to your discord for anyone who's listening to this, who isn't yet in that discord, I would highly recommend you go become a patron, check it out because there really is some of the highest level content highest level discussions about magic happening in that discord right now it is one of my favorite things that we've ever created i think it it deserves as much credit as any episode of any podcast we've ever done or you know any any piece of content i've created i think the discord stands right alongside it well and i think it highlights the fact that and I think you've been kind of bringing this up on the show, is that community is one of your strongest resources in Magic, right? So, you know, better than any one website or better than any one article that you read or any one particular streamer you watch is, it sounds like from what you're saying, is being plugged into a thriving community where top-level Magic is being discussed all the time, right? Having that exposure so that you can test your ideas, so that you can watch other people go through their thought processes on their way to developing decks that are going to be competitive. Right. And I think the best way to gain entrance to those communities is just by being forthright. And when you have something that's really good, 
the benefit of putting it out there to the world and letting them iterate on it and share in the successes of it is so much greater than the benefit of that one tournament where you think you have a secret that nobody else can take advantage of. That evaporates very, very quickly. And regardless of having just the absolute best deck in the room, it's still hard to convert. There's very few guaranteed outcomes in Magic. In fact, there's basically none. So you might break it 100% in half, and it can still not go your way that day. And certainly, we've all experienced that before. Uh, But if you break it in half and share that deck with 20 people, and someone does really well with it, the benefits you reap from their success can be far greater than the individual benefits you have gotten on your own anyway. I think a really good recent example of this is friend of the show and someone I've interviewed a few times so far, Aaron Gertler, right, with his Team of Clover list. Absolutely. And he's been trumpeting this deck from the rooftops for, it feels like, forever now, uh, at least the last six months. And he finally took down DreamHack with the deck. And he had told everyone anything they would ever want to know about that deck. And it didn't change the fact that he was able to pilot it in an expert way and take down the tournament. So yeah, I I really love how you're highlighting it. This kind of like new generation of Magic players who are processing information and sharing information differently. Another person who comes to my mind like this is Crokies, right? Someone who's just consistently at the top of the game. And you're basically watching him go through his thought process on stream. The the man has few secrets from my perspective. You know what he's playing at that tournament. You know what he's been testing for. You know what he's been thinking about. I, I love that there is that opportunity. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And Aaron in particular was in our Discord all the time, basically just for months being like, nobody beats me when I play this deck. Uh, It's the best deck in the format. And some people listened. Uh, I I think he was so modest and so like non-obtrusive about it that a bunch of people just swept it under the rug regardless of his extreme success. And certainly that changed very quickly when he took down a major tournament, but he was sharing all the information in our Discord. Any questions you had for Aaron about the deck, he would take the time to answer them. And beyond that, the thing that really impressed me about his demeanor, and I told him as much, was that regardless of this being his deck and him certainly having a huge lion's share of the ownership and its success, when somebody else interjected with their opinion on it, he listened every single time and took what they said very seriously, thought about it, considered it, either defended his choice to differ from them very eloquently or said, you know what, that's valid. I'm going to try that out every single time. That's the way he approached anyone's input. Yeah, I love it. And I think it just goes to show that even the top level players who are open-minded will reap the benefits of that. Because I think that this happens a lot in magic and a lot in life in general, where you'll you'll develop these kind of, I'm going to call them heuristic furrows in your life, where it's almost like a, a well-worn neural pathway, where you just think, so-and-so card isn't good, unplayable, not going to think about it. And you just kind of trash it. And and as far as, as most of your brain is concerned, that card is just gone. And then suddenly a space will open up for it in a meta. And if you're not willing to go back and re-examine that assumption and reroute those neural pathways in the mind, then you might just be leaving huge equity on the table. And I think that that's what Aaron did with cards like Escape to the Wild, right? which are cards that nobody was playing. I mean, people just looked at that card and they did that. They just thought, unplayable, I'm done, I'm not coming back. And so Aaron's just quietly, and then in some ways not so quietly, like, hey guys, this card's actually really good. I've found a good shell for it. I really think that you should check this out. And I think that there are probably a lot of players who left equity on the table because they weren't willing to listen to him or weren't willing to consider that there might be another way to attack a matter that they just hadn't been open to before. I think you're exactly right. And the interesting thing about that too, is that it works the other way as well. The most controversial episode of our podcast we have ever recorded was an episode entitled The Scarab God is Unplayable. (laughs) I remember. People rioted (laughs) in the streets. Like they were just furious. We would ever suggest the Scarab God was unplayable. 
But for the two-week period of time that we were talking about, like immediately after the podcast, it was just not the correct time to be playing the Scarab God. Then, three weeks later, when it was, again, the correct time to play the Scarab God, we had to listen to everyone yelling at us about how wrong we were and how stupid we were for calling the Scarab God unplayable. It's like, no, in that moment, it was unplayable. We were correct. And people just couldn't bring themselves to see that even a card is format-defining as the Scarab God still has peaks and valleys. And magic is a lot about identifying peaks and valleys and understanding when a particular card is strong. And if you're just defaulting to this card is too strong, always, you always have to play it, you're going to 100% make a mistake a good percentage of the time. Yeah, that's definitely something that has stood out as a defining feature of players who who can do well, right? And a way that you can get an edge, I think, especially in an established matter is just by having an openness of mind to considering things that maybe other people aren't considering or to considering ways of taking existing lists and tuning them in a way that other people aren't really considering. And that's something that I wanted to ask you about because I feel like you in particular, one of your strengths as a brewer and one of your strengths as a competitor is I think that you're very good at looking at an archetype, maybe even a well-established archetype, and just thinking like, what are those couple of cards that I would change in order to get a few more percentage points? Or I think that you're also one of those players who's very good at looking at a tournament and figuring out what's going to be good that weekend. So I was wondering if you could just take us through some of your thought process behind that or how you start to evaluate that in any given moment. That's so hard to put that into words because it's it's become so ingrained. Like it's just how I have lived my life for the last 10 years. Like, okay, this was good this week. Here's what we're doing next week. And in a spot, I can talk through why. But as far as like a broad process definition it's really hard for me to pull one up it's part understanding matchups understanding what is actually favored and what is perceived as favored which are not the same thing whatsoever uh, people hold a lot of false assumptions and a lot of assumptions that they base on playing against inferior players that are not always true mm, okay. so i try and check those assumptions in a lot of instances and then I, it's sorry to interrupt you here, Brian, but I think that that's a really interesting point that you raised. And I wonder if there's a way that we could dive into that just a little bit in like a concrete example. Well, the, the clearest example I can think of is just going back a month or so when Jerry and I got together to play uh, Azorius Control versus Team of Reclamation, and we did a whole show on it. And the reason we chose to do that, because half of the people in our Discord were yelling that Team of Reclamation crushed Azorius Control, and half the people in our Discord were yelling that Azorius Control crushed Teamer. And notice the word I'm using there, crush. People did not see it as a close matchup, depending on which side they were. So that shows you that there's something else going on there. There's incomplete information, because if both players think they are dominant in the matchup, then there's really big swings. And the ultimate conclusion we came to was that individual card choice matters so, so much. And that just makes obvious sense in a matchup where you're seeing a tremendous portion of your deck and where only a few cards matter. It should be clear that if I have an extra copy of Dovin's Veto, I'm changing the matchup pretty dramatically. But the other point too was that there was just a million decisions all up and down the curve and a million different play patterns you could embrace on either side. Like you could play super aggressive, you can be super conservative and everywhere in between. And all of those things led to the fact that there's probably a huge amount of variance depending on your individual list. But the conclusion we reached was a slight edge for one of the decks. We didn't think either side had a huge favor as built presently. And we saw potential for both sides to build in contemplation of the other deck. I guess there's no real path of direction to extrapolate from that data, right? It's all about what the broader community is going to do. And if you can pin them down to a specific list, if you're just like, okay, I know people are going to build their decks this way, it's very easy. And I think that message gets lost a lot when we do metagame breakdowns and you go, oh, there were 13 mono red decks here and mono red didn't do well. But you go a little deeper and you look at those mono red decks and you find out the two mono red decks that played Robber the Rich actually had a huge edge against the entire field, but they're lumped in with mono red and there's nothing to take away from that. So you really have to drill down into the data and also just play magic. And 
these things are not going to reveal themselves to you immediately. Now, that's not to say you need to eat, sleep, breathe magic, because I, that has never been my approach. I have never been the type of person who just plays a ton of games. I pop in and out, but I play a game with purpose. I play a game to learn something. And then when I learn that thing, I integrate that data into my process. And some information just requires a game or two to really understand. I love that. And and it calls me back to when I watch magic at the top level, I feel like the amount that I learn, it it's almost like a condensed drug for my magic brain. I was thinking about like the world championship. I just watched that so raptly and so attentively because these people were playing decks, all of which I was familiar with and all of which I had piloted before. And so it was just top level learning for me to watch these pros play it. And I was really blown away, for example, by I'd be on the ladder and maybe I'd be playing fires and I'd throw down Teferi on turn three. And I just think, oh, turn three Teferi in the fires deck, of course, like it always was, right? But when I'm watching Marcio Carvalho slam Teferi on turn three, and it's almost like I'm, I can watch all of the different machinations going through his mind and watch, you know, what Paulo's thinking about. And of course, listening to the expert commentary and all of this stuff helps, but it teases out this much broader image of just how impactful this particular card is in this particular matchup. And so I think that that's just one of many examples. Um, Robber of the Rich being another, you know, that you brought up another excellent example of a card which it's easy to misevaluate and it's it's an easy card to look at in any given situation and think that it's good or it's not so good but when you're when you're paying attention to these high level players playing the cards and you're watching them go through their thought process it just unlocks this whole deeper understanding of the game which i really love yeah they're leveraging the card in furtherance of a specific game plan it's not just a raw oh this card is good or oh this card is bad it is this card helps me achieve this goal and if i achieve this goal it leads to this goal and this goal will allow me to win the match right and i think that that's something that can't be overstated enough in magic is that it's easy to see the finisher finish a game right it's easy to see someone resolve their explosion for 16 or it's easy to see someone slam down that kenrith and give it haste and win the game and you think okay kenrith great card gotta put that in my deck but it's easy to miss all of the subtle things that happened in the game to put someone in a position to actually be able to finish with their finisher and so i think that that's something that you can get a lot of edge with in your game is by looking at the deck as like a building. You have a foundation, you have a floor, you have walls, you have windows, you have a roof, and all of these different parts of the house do different things. And so that's one of the things that I love about when you hear a conversation with a higher level player. They'll be looking back on their game and they'll be saying, letting my opponent resolve growth spiral on turn two or turn three was actually the thing that lost me that game. So you're watching that game and you're seeing Nissa destroy someone and you're thinking, oh man, Nissa's a great card. You know, they they top decked it and they had it and they won the game. That's really awesome. But but that player will look back and say, no, it was it was that growth spiral that won me the game. Yeah, and that's something I try to really emphasize in my commentary too. I try to really paint the key points of a match and the key points of the match are not the alpha attack. It's, it's not the really powerful planeswalker resolving. It's what did you do to push your opponent into that corner where you were then able to capitalize? And shout outs returns this week. First of all, we have Rich G. Shout out to Migvald Mig for hitting me up to play test some standard decks yesterday. Thank you for being outgoing and rad. And uh, yeah, just wanted to let you know we've had a number of players in our Discord community getting together, playing games, doing some testing, giving each other some input on decks, etc. And for and I've been doing it as well. For example, next shout out Kenja, shout out to Arjuna, myself, for hanging out last night and running some drafts with me. I learned a lot just from hearing you analyze lines of play, and I feel like a better player after. Thank you, Kenja. 
And, you know, I read this not so much as humble brags, but rather just to say that I really love drafting with other people. And, you know, sometimes like I've had a long day and I might not necessarily feel like playing a game myself, but I enjoy kind of backseat driving for somebody else. So if you would like to improve your draft game, just hit me up in the Discord and maybe I can help you do a draft. Maybe I can help you play a couple of your games. Uh, whatever. I certainly enjoy doing that. Got another shout out here for Mig Vald Mig, this time from Stubby Stubble 21. Thank you, Mid Vald Mig. <laughs> Mig Vald Mig for a great game. Really want to see what the deck does. So, Mig Vald Mig, apparently the MVP in our Discord community this week. Also, Mr. Granada's shout out to ECHED0202. He was running Jun Sack versus my Jeskai midrange. Every single game was down to the wire, a slugfest, a grind. And in the end of game three, he found two Mayhem Devils out, and a cat, and an oven, and a trail of crumbs, and brought me down to one HP. But I had two Stone Coil Serpents, and the Trample does not care about a blocking cat. Wow, what a game. So that's the kind of epicness we look out for here in the Shoutouts channel. That is awesome. Finally, I just wanted to give a shout-out to Absurd Heroine and her community and my community for showing up live to my Twitch broadcast of our Deathmatch face-off last week. We had a fantastic time playing the Deathmatch format, which is a race to the bottom where the first person to lose wins. And so we got a chance to see a couple of different approaches in action. Uh, I brought a self-burn deck to the table, which ended up being a little bit too strong. Had to remove the shock lands, or all of the special lands from that deck actually, but it was still looks like the deck to beat in the format. I also, however, got crushed playing against her Magic Mirror deck, um, which just totally outperformed my self-mill deck. So classic Absurd Heroine deck construction going on there. Highly recommend that you watch that. And so the best way to do that is actually to go to her channel. Just look up Absurd Heroine on YouTube and you will find that video posted and you'll get to see our games. We had a few technical issues, so you're not going to get to see the whole thing. If you if you do want to see what you've missed, you can also go and see the replay on my Twitch channel. But really do make sure that you go watch our video. It's going to be much better edited and better produced and probably more entertaining than my vlog. Now she tends to release her videos on Wednesday, so if you're listening to this right when I release this, it might not be up yet. As soon as that video is up, I will put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. So definitely go check that out, and she just makes amazing content, so I highly encourage everything that she does. Also just wanted to shout out community member Saracenth for really doing a lot to promote that and help people get on the call. It was really great to have you there, and I hope to do it again sometime. All right, back to the interview. Okay, awesome. So I I diverted you down this this little side hallway because I thought that it was very easy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, we were going into how you start to dissect a meta game, how you start to evaluate those card choices, just those one or two cards that might make the difference. So what are some other things that you're taking into account when you're trying to make those little subtle choices? I always try to have holistic planning uh, in the forefront of my brain. And what I mean by that is it's not about, again, it's not about the individual card and, oh, is this card going to be good? It's about what my game plan is. And a really clear recent example I can think of as far as that goes, uh, is going back to the Twitch Rivals tournament a few months ago. It was the first post Oko Band tournament, uh, and I did pretty well with John Sacrifice. And that was what really put that deck on the map, was a strong performance by multiple people in that tournament. But I was very, very clear that my plan for the mirror revolved around six mana Garrick, who I can't even remember the rest of the card name of that card because it sees such a small amount of play at this point was is it cursed huntsman is that what it was that that sounds correct (laughs) okay we'll go with that (laughs) and look ultimately yeah ultimately that plan proved not to be the correct one for the mirror like there were better ways to go about it but at that formative stage nobody had a really clear-cut plan it was like oh i'll bring in some noxious graphs and i'll 
check Witch's Oven in this fashion, but mine was, no, I will play the entire game trading resources, leading to the point where I stick this Garrick, make my creatures large, and just get out of this whole bogged down quagmire that we're incentivized to play over and over and Garrett can be my trump every single time and I'd play my games in that fashion I'd trade resources look to control them from getting their engine online and then eventually just overwhelm with Garrick and it worked in that tournament again didn't prove to be the correct way to approach the matchup in the long term but in that moment I had a really clear-cut plan and that is what I really emphasize in my deck building take your 75 cards and make sure in those 75 cards, you're putting forth a coherent plan for every single matchup. I really like that because I feel like you made a distinction there between picking the best 75 ever for a deck in posterity versus just picking a 75 that you think has a particularly strong game plan in a particular moment, uh, which I think is is a subtle difference that a lot of people might not think about. So when you're crafting a deck, you can look at an archetype like Jeskai Fires, which we've been talking about, and you have these very, very common cards that you'll see in this deck. You have the Cavalier of Gales, and you'll have the Cavalier of Flame and stuff. And I think that it's it's common for someone to just look at that deck and think, all right, I'm going to run four Fires, I'm going to run four Cavaliers of Flame, four Cavaliers of Gales. And they just take that for granted. But then you'll see these interesting lists that people come up with where maybe they've switched out two Cavalier of Gales for two Brazen Borrower. And you'll look at that and you'll think, hmm, that's that's odd, right? Like, I think if you're looking at that deck list, you should have some tickling in the back of your head. Like, why would this person not run the full Cavalier of Gales compliment? And why would they instead run Brazen Borrower? It's things like that that give you an invitation to be thinking about how has the plan changed? What is the narrative of this deck which makes Brazen Borrower a more important include than filling out that Cavalier suite? So that's that's kind of what I hear you talking about here is not being so rigid in your notion of what a deck is, but more conforming to what a plan should be. I think that's exactly right. And I think you benefit a lot too when you're reviewing decks from asking yourself those kind of questions rather than to just determine, oh, this person is correct or this person is wrong. And I say that knowing that when we do like deck dumps on the Arena Decklist podcast, oftentimes we'll be like, no, this deck doesn't really seem to do what it's trying to do. And we do declare things wrong. But part of that is a concession to like the format and making entertaining content that people like to listen to. In an optimal world, we would erase those terms completely from our vocabulary, and we would just look at the merits of individual cards and be like, okay, this is trying to accomplish this. I'm going to put that in my memory banks for future usage and see if maybe I want to employ that at some point. It's a it's a much more fruitful way to identify uh, trends in deck building. That's fantastic. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was I feel like Every now and then we'll see a player come through who's just clearly got something figured out. And one of the most recent examples I'm thinking of is Chris Kavartek. As someone who has kind of appeared out of nowhere and just consistently posted amazing results, worked his way into the MPL, and he's clearly got a unique approach. So I just wanted to ask you about him and just about somebody like him. What are you seeing from players like Chris Kavartek that stand out to you and make you think, yeah, this guy's really got something? Like, what are players like that doing that other players might not be doing? They're staying true to their approach more than anything else. They just have a theory of the game and they emphasize that theory whenever they can. And Chris, in particular, does an incredible job of finding aggression in spots where other players just don't where other players are content to sit back a little bit chris is great at knowing exactly when to go on the offensive and knowing that he builds decks in a fashion that can exploit that tendency and do a really good job of just ending games from nowhere chris is a great player so regardless of how chris cracked into the pro scene i think he would have had a very good career a very good season the reason he had a great tremendous season is that he was playing the game in a fashion that nobody else was and doing it at a high level and when you put those two things together when you trust in yourself and you're willing to say look 
this is something I believe in. I realize it's outside the norm, but I'm finding success with it. And I'm going to believe in myself and commit to this style of play, this style of deck building all the way to the end. That's when you can do something really special. And kind of the shape of Magic OP incentivizes you to do something special right now. It's not enough to just be consistent and show up with the stock best list and grind out a top 16 out of GP week in and week out. That used to be good enough. And that was the hallmark of some of the best players. Things look different now, though. And I think you are really incentivized to get those spikes and to get those huge performances. And there's probably nobody better in the world at doing that right now than Chris Kavartek. I mean, I would put Canister in the same breath. I would put Javier and uh, Andrea in the same breath. But it's just this dominance event after event especially when it comes to the arena sphere and it it has been really inspiring to watch honestly i love that you listed those those other players because they were on my mind as well all people who like you said really show that commitment one of the reasons why andrea is one of my favorite players to watch and to follow is that I really sense that he does have that commitment. He has strong opinions about things, and he's willing to put himself on the line for his opinions. Like, I remember watching him play that Simic ramp deck that he became so well-known for. And that's that's a deck with a plan, you know what I mean? Like, that's a deck where you look at a meta game and you just plant your flag and you say, I'm doing this, I'm going to be the person who casts Enray's Forerunners, and that's just going to be who I am. And I think that there would have been people at the time, especially before he started posting huge results with that deck, who would have looked at that and been like, oh, you know, that's kind of, you know, that's like a cube deck, right? You're trying to play cube in standard or something like that. And that's kind of a joke or that's an easy game plan to disrupt or whatever. And I think that it took a strong personality like his to say, actually, no, this is viable and I'm going to make you pay attention to that. So I, I really like that. And and again, you know, someone I've already mentioned on this podcast, but Crokies, I think, is another example of a player who will do that. Or Aaron Gertler, right? These are all people who've had convictions and who have a style, who have been saying, look, if you if you have a theory for what can be good in a format, or in general, if you have a theory of what's good in magic and you're willing to pursue it hard enough and you're willing to be committed to it and try the iterations until you find the thing that works, then you really can break through with a good idea. And I think that that's one of the gifts of the current format that we're seeing right now is that I feel like a lot of the most successful decks that you see are the product of people just trying that iterative process. You know, like the Bant lists at the moment have just everyone's list is a couple cards off, right? Or Saltai especially. You know, you, you put any two Saltai players next to each other in standard and they're, they're probably not going to be playing the same list. And so I think that that, like you said, that is an incentive that we have to pursue right now and that's an opportunity that we have to stake our claim and to grow ourselves as Magic players. And I really love how you highlight the fact that it's kind of like a combination of listening to input but also in identifying what really gasses you up about magic and identifying what your strengths are and and really pursuing those and that's actually that dovetails really nicely into something i wanted to ask you about you know i wanted to we've been talking a lot about general strategy and general improvement and stuff like that but I wanted to just get a little personal here, if hopefully that's okay, and <laughs> drop the drop the waterline a little bit, and just ask you about your process personally of identifying your strengths, identifying your weaknesses, identifying your specific theories of magic, and how to build a narrative out of that, or how to pursue those. So I wonder if you would be willing to just talk us through either generally or with specific examples of points in your magic career where you've said, hmm, I think I could really improve on this and what you've done to do that, right? Or or a time when you've said, I think that this is one of my strengths and I'm going to leverage it in a certain way. So how have you gone about that? So I think I've been at this so long that I have a very clear sense of where my strengths and weaknesses lie at this point. And I would love to say that 
I'm going to work really hard to change my weaknesses and overcome them. Uh, the reality is, I don't know if that's going to happen at this stage of my career. I have some of that old man brain setting in and I'm just not as you know sharp and quick as I used to be. So uh, I don't know if I have the potential to reform my weaknesses, but from a strength side of things, I think very early on, so I had a sense of this, but I misdiagnosed it. And what I mean by that is when I first moved to competitive magic, I felt like I was a control player. That is how I identified like, oh, I'm just really good at playing control decks. And that was a simplification of what where my strength actually lies. My strength lies in seeing how a game will play out many, many turns in advance and shaping my opponent's actions so that it breaks favorably for me. And to leverage that skill, it tends to be that I am playing control decks. But there are more mid-rangey approaches that really leverage that skill well. And occasionally an aggro deck pops up that can also uh, really benefit from pushing your opponent into corners and having some proper planning. So I am very convinced that that's where my strength lies. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've walked away from a game being like, I shaped what my opponent did on every single turn of that game. And it was exactly what I wanted the whole time. And that's where I really feel my best magic comes from. Now, when I am doing that, unfortunately, I'm going to mix in some head-ass shit along the way. And that is my weakness. I will just miss obvious things on the battlefield. Uh, things that I should have clearly done will become evident to me on the next turn. Um, just weird, weird lapses of concentration. And part of that is just like my mental state, being someone with a lot of ADD and a lot of focus issues, that's the reality of who I am. And I'm cool with that. And I think a lot of my play style has evolved to compensate from that. Because if a game is going really long and I'm doing long-term planning, I can shrug off some of those little missteps along the way. Whereas if I'm playing a condensed six or seven turn game and I have to eke out every point of damage it's harder to overcome those missteps. Now, if I was still endeavoring to be like a MPL member, I would have to beat those kind of mistakes out of my game. And I can do that. If you give me enough reps, I will get to the place where I am no longer making those mistakes. But it really requires uh, a lot of commitment, a lot of focus that doesn't really fit with what I'm trying to do in this space right now. More of my time is better spent uh, thinking and contemplating and producing content. So I can't really dive in on that same level, but I'm cool with that. I figured out ways to adapt to it. And also another strength I would mention is just what we talked about already, uh, understanding holistic game plans and building decks to account from them. Also in early weeks, I'm very good at understanding what the best strategy is. And often week one tournaments, I said I had my greatest edge against the field. Mm -hmm. I think that that is very clear to a lot of people from, you know, I feel like you call really, really good shots and would you say that that is a result of your kind of meta level thinking? Because that's what I'm really hearing from you is that I feel like in magic, you have micro decisions, right? Should I counter this spell? Should I attack with this creature? And then, you know, you have macro decisions. How am I going to play this turn? How's this game going? What's my focus? And it, it sounds to me like you have a very, very, a, a brain that grasps the macro quickly and easily, and that the micro might be a thing that you struggle with more. I'm curious, and maybe there's no concrete answer to this, but I'm just curious what kind of insights you're having that allow you to make those calls. Like, is it just that you are paying attention? Is it just that your brain is, is chugging on this in the background? What do you think it is that's making you able to say, yeah, I think this is going to be a really solid pick in week one? I think there is a lot of historical knowledge rolled up, just understanding what is possible in the game of magic and when things are existing outside of typical frameworks. Like I'll point to something like Nexus of Fate, which was a trumpet I blew very hard at the release of Nexus of Fate. And it was a card that most people were not interested in, but there's, there's just some things that set off alarm bells for me and 
I, it was so easy for me to envision games where you just didn't care about anything except continually reducing the size of your deck and getting to a point where nothing your opponent did mattered because your deck was just all time walks and you didn't have to have any win conditions in your deck. You were just all about surviving and reaching this point. And it just seems so, so obviously achievable to me with very little help. Like, I think I said the day Nexus of Fate was spoiled. If you print a fog, I will break standard for the next 12 months. And then a fog came out the next day. And I don't know if it went as far as like standard being broken, but there is no question that Nexus of Fate was a defining feature of standard for a very long time. And if you go back to the previewing of that card, nobody cared. Nobody was excited about it. And it just seemed patently obvious to me. So it's a lot of identifying when things fall outside norms. And with Nexus of Fate, the replacement clause that put it back into your deck was so far outside of norms. Also, time walk at instant speed, very, very far outside of norms. And that's what really, really sets off alarm bells for me. Uh, I can go to Once Upon a Time as a recent print. Like That one's obvious. I don't I don't even want any credit for that one because everyone was just like, what is happening here? Free spell, uh, reducing variance, always having your key one drops. It was very clear that this card was going to be problematic. Oko a little bit murkier for me at first, but the first time you put it onto the battlefield, it was very clear this just invalidates text boxes. And there's few cards in the history of magic that just invalidate everything your opponent is doing on their side of the battlefield. But Oko was that, and it only took a little play to see that. So I, I really look for outliers. That is the key. Things that are doing something that has either never been done in Magic before or has historically been proven to be a successful strategy. You know, something that stands out to me from the recent matters was you were an early buyer on the Doom Foretold deck. And mm. and then you went on to prove it in, in the early weeks of the format by, you know, taking... Was that the fandom, I think it was, that you took down with that? Fandom Legends, yeah, that was again a, a week, a, actually a day one tournament. There you go, uh, where I played Doom for Doom. So, so tell me, because I think that's a really specific example in recent memory that we can focus on. What, when did you start to think, okay, this might be a really viable deck? Because I think a lot of like I remember facing that deck on the ladder in in the the first days of the format and thinking. Oh yeah, I mean that's kind of a meme and you know maybe they beat me because they just got a good draw or whatever and it took me a while to really realize like no, this is a serious deck. So what was it about that deck that made the alarm bells go off for you? So that deck is interesting because I have recently said that I I think it's the worst deck I've ever won a tournament with and that doesn't mean it's like bad or invalidated. It just Ultimately, like where it fell in the metagame, it was so underpowered versus absolutely everything else that was happening. But this was really a piece of metagaming. And it's weird to say that because this was a, again, day one tournament. There had been like the streamer showcase the two days before, and that was it. So how do you metagame when there's literally nothing being played yet? And it was the broadest piece of metagaming I had ever done, but it ultimately proved true. And it was based on the fact that when I watched the streamer showcase and what I did was I went to multi-twitch and I had like across my three monitors, a lot of games of magic going on at once, like basically 32 games of magic. And I was just scanning around and popping from place to place and trying to get a sense of what was going on. And I wasn't uh, in the streamer showcase event, I, I didn't have like the Wizards God account, so I couldn't participate. So all I could do was watch, and this was how I chose to prepare for fandom. And there was just a sense in seeing all these things at the same time. Again, a very macro approach, uh, but seeing all this stuff at the same time made clear that battlefields were just absolutely flooded. And there was creatures everywhere and stalemates everywhere and just creatures staring at each other and it became clear to me that what I wanted to do was play a deck that had access to Kaya's Wrath. And the Esper mana was iffy in its default form. Like, I didn't just want to play Esper Control. Uh, the eggs fixed a lot of that problem. And Doom Foretold was also a card that when I saw it played, nobody knew how to play against it. Like, everyone just did things wrong all over the place. And that proved true in that tournament where I'm obviously playing against the best players in the world. 
and they still don't quite understand how the card works. I remember it was either the finals or the semifinals. I think it was the finals against Brad Nelson, where he had just a very clear misstep and like ran an Oko out when I had a doom foretold on the battlefield and either miss like the non-token aspect of it or something along those lines, but basically just gave away one of his key cards in the matchup because he didn't understand doom foretold. And this isn't to drag Brad again, this is day zero of the format. Like it's very hard to understand these cards. And I think doom foretold is an unintuitive card. Uh, but I also felt like there was points to be gained in that fashion as well. And it, it did actually manifest that way. So got it straight from the mouth of Brian Gottlieb. Pick cards with a lot of text on them, slam them day one of the meta game, and just ride them to victory. It <laughs> yeah, it can help. We're getting towards the end of our time here, but just a final question that I wanted to ask you before we go here is, are there any nuggets, or are there even just any kind of top-level thoughts that you have about things that you've learned from hanging out with some of the top level players in magic how has spending time around players at the top level changed your appreciation of or your understanding of or your approach to playing magic i think it's done a lot to really emphasize my own approach because hanging around these people there's differences between them and i there's things that they just do way better than i do I see that routinely. I recognize that. But I also have to acknowledge the fact, and like I say this from a very humble place uh, and with the concession that these players are better at magic than me, but I beat them a lot. And in fact, I beat good players way more often than I beat bad players. Like there's just, there's something I do very well in these scenarios that leads me to victory. And it happens too often for me to just be like, oh, I get lucky all the time. And certainly there's like some imposter syndrome that is wanting to tell me, oh, you're just getting lucky. But in my heart, I know that's not the case. I know there are things I do very well in magic, um, despite other glaring weaknesses. So it has emphasized my desire to lean into the things I do really well. And I think that's been reinforced by just sharing time with Jerry. And like, we differ a lot. We We have contrasting opinions, but I have to have belief that like, this is something I do well. Again, like go back to Nexus of Fate, not a card that Jerry was all that interested in. And I can par- point to a bunch of cards as we've gone on that he just had a low opinion of where I was like, no, this is really good. Listen to me here. Um, but that being said, if he and I are breaking down a battlefield, he's going to do it 10 times faster than me and 10 times more accurate than I'm going to. So I have to really lean into those things to get my edge. I have to accept what I'm good at, understand what I'm not as good at, and shape my entire approach to magic around those things. And just spending time commentating events on the SCG tour, talking with Jerry all the time, it's really driven that point home. There's something I'm good at, but it's not the typical thing. And I need to really embrace that if I'm going to find success in magic. Well, I'll tell you what, if you get to choose whether you play well against randos on the ladder or the top players of the game, I would probably choose the side of it you're on as well. <laughs> so it, it proved to be very lucrative last year, I'll say that. So uh, I, I was happy it broke down that way. Indeed. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been a real pleasure just getting to get into some of the layers of your thinking and I feel like you're truly someone who, like, there's there's just more layers to that onion. Every time I hear you talk and the, the few times I've spoken with you, uh, there's just always another thing to unpack, always another layer to, to get into. So anyone who's listening to this, I would highly encourage you to go check out the Arena Decklist podcast. I mean, I'm sure you probably already listened to them, but if you haven't heard of them, they also cover a lot of Arena stuff. They talk about Standard all the time. And Jerry Thompson, of course, one of the luminaries of the game. So that's just fantastic content and also definitely encourage you to go and check out their discord again just one of the best resources for magic on the planet right now also people are tweeting at you all the time with their arena deck lists right and is that just at arena deck lists is that what that is correct at arena deck lists send us your decks let us know where you are on the ladder and we try to share that information just because there really aren't any mechanisms uh, to share ladder decks that are doing particularly well. And we saw that very early on in Arena's existence, tried to step up and get something going. Uh, and it has proven to be very successful, like 25,000 people following the account now and getting deck lists from us. So that's something we're happy to do for the community. And is that cross format like anything legal on Arena? 
basically, I mean, the interest in historic just isn't quite there yet. Um, if it if it manifests, then we will do more retweeting of historic decks. Uh, similarly, it sounds like Pioneer is basically a certainty to arrive on Arena at some point. I expect at that point we might merge our other account, Pioneer Deckless. Yes, we do it all. Uh, and we'll start sharing those decks. But uh, basically whatever people want to see about Arena, we will share. And there wasn't really any interest in like Arena draft decks, so we backed off of that pretty quickly. Uh, the rando formats occasionally we'll touch on, mostly not. We're trying to give as much useful information as we can, but if tastes change, we'll certainly adapt to them. Awesome. And just a great account to follow, I think, if you're wanting to take the pulse of Arena as well, just follow arena decklist and just see what other people tweet at them right and you will start to get a sense of the shape of the meta and just what people are thinking about you'll get to see if someone had a good run with a certain deck you know took down an event or or whatever so yeah couldn't recommend it enough brian is there anything else that you'd like to call out on this podcast just about you know maybe it's a youtube thing you're doing or anything else that you'd like for people to know about as far as content that you're making we do some occasional youtube posting uh at this point it's mostly just reposting of the podcast but it is youtube.com slash arena decklist occasionally there are some videos we put up there uh the aforementioned team reclamation azorius control videos we had up on youtube uh, so you can keep an eye on that. Beyond that, uh, I would just encourage everyone uh, to think about the Magic community at this very trying time. There are a lot of people making content right now, trying to eke out a living doing so. Uh, this isn't a plug for myself, by the way. I am I am okay. I am more concerned about other folks in similar positions right now. Uh, if you appreciate someone's content, this is a really great time to let them know, to support what they're doing, uh, to make sure they're able to get through these trying times as cleanly as they possibly can. It's going to be hard for all of us, uh, but I'm sure every little bit of support will matter. Awesome. Well, that's some of that characteristic generosity from you that I always appreciate. And I totally echo the sentiment. Now is a great time to just, you know, as a content creator myself, and especially as a less established content creator, I have to say that even the small things really matter, right? So Agreed. They matter to me. I mean, they, I think anyone who's making content, if you take the time to say, hey, I really enjoyed that, that matters so much. Yeah, it's it's just, it's such a big difference. Like, I remember when I first started posting podcasts, right? And it was like, the difference between nothing and one comment was was everything. Yep. I feel like if I record an episode or if I release a video or whatever, and one person says, hey, that was awesome, it's like, that. that's it, that's enough for me. And I mean, of course, you know, people are, some content creators are paying their rent with it. Some content creators are, you know, have other goals that they set with this stuff. But I think that what the initial impulse of creating the content was, I just wanted someone to benefit, or I just wanted someone to smile, or I just right. wanted someone to to also enjoy this thing along with me. So yeah, I, I really love that. Reach out to people, let them know you appreciate them in whatever way you can, either financially or otherwise. Just follow them, show them love, give them reviews, and everything will be good, or at least will be just a little bit better than it otherwise would have been during this trying time. Well, uh, thanks so much, Brian. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and I will look forward to seeing you out and about. And that wraps it up for this week. And I'm excited. Next week, we're going to get back to standard. I've taken a little bit of a break from it because I was getting tired of the format, but got a cool guest coming up to help us dive back into it and explore some of the reasons that people are and aren't enjoying the current format. So I will look forward to that. And in the meantime, take care.